The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you today is Believing is Seeing, and it really is kind of part two of a sermon that we launched into last week, where we saw Jesus perform this incredible, albeit peculiar, miracle where he walked up and there was a a man who was blind from birth and he sat begging and Jesus approached him and he used his own spit and he mixed it with the dust of the earth to form mud and then he applied that mud to the eyes of the blind man and he sent him to the pool of Siloam and said, go and wash. And the man, in obedience to what Jesus commanded him, went and he washed. And as he splashed the water into his eyes, he blinked. And for the first time in his entire life, his eyes were opened and he came back seeing. It was an incredible miracle. But what I would like to suggest to you today is As incredible as that miracle was, it was only the second most impressive thing that happened to the guy that day. The greatest thing that would happen to him is that he would be welcomed into God's family and he would become a follower of Jesus. See, it's wonderful that he had his physical eyes open, but even greater than that is that his spiritual eyes were opened. And I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that we're a part of a church where we believe that God is still active, alive, and on the move. And so we pray for miracles. We get to see and experience miracles. We share miracle testimonies and stories all the time around here. I mean, just last week, I had a guy walk up to me after service and hand me his cane and say, I don't need it anymore. God healed me today during church, and I can't believe it. He had no more back pain. He didn't need his cane. And there are dozens of stories like that all the time. I mean, we've, we've seen God open deaf ears. We've seen him cure incurable diseases. We've seen him cure every kind of cancer at every stage. We've seen someone with macular degeneration, and the doctors told them they were going blind, and now their sight has been restored. And so we're familiar with the God of miracles, but I don't want us to ever forget that the greatest miracle that God ever does in a person's life is he opens their heart to receive him so that they become followers of Jesus. The miracle of new birth is the greatest miracle. Amen? And in our story today, we're going to see this formerly blind man. Notice he's the formerly blind man. We're going to see his journey to faith in Jesus. So pick up with me there in verse 8 of John 9, where it says, so this is the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of this healing. It says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same guy that used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was, but others said, no, no, it just looks like him. But he himself insisted, it's me, I'm the guy. (laughs) And I, I find a little bit of humor in this because he's having trouble convincing his friends and neighbors that he was the same guy that used to sit and beg who had been born blind. Can you imagine that? they're like, you look like him, but there's like something different. I can't quite put my finger on it. And he's like blinking at them and staring at them in the eyes. Uh, you think? And I would suggest to you that the reason why he was having trouble convincing him that he was the same guy is because he wasn't. He'd met the Savior, and it left him forever changed, not just on the outside, not just physically, but 
spiritually and internally. And what was true of him is equally true of every person who gives their life to Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle put it like this in his letter to the Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's one of my most favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. And it says this. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life, it's gone. Hallelujah. A new life has begun. Now, I draw your attention to that word that I've underlined there in the middle of that verse, the word new. In the Greek, it's the word kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. And it speaks of something that has undergone such a dramatic transformation that it is now new in its essence. There's another Greek word that you could translate as new, and it's the Greek word neos, N-E-O-S. And it describes something that is new in terms of time or creation. So in the beginning, in Genesis, when God creates the heavens and the earth, the word that you would describe, used to describe that act is the Greek word neos. Kainos, on the other hand, describes something that has undergone this dramatic shift and is therefore new in its nature. And God has given us a picture of what this looks like, this this translates to in nature itself. Picture the lowly caterpillar. As it enters its chrysalis, then a few weeks later, it emerges as a beautiful butterfly. It enters the chrysalis in one form, but emerges as something completely new and different. And think about how different they are. I mean, caterpillars and butterflies have almost nothing in common. Caterpillars are creatures of the ground. They're ground dwellers, and they creep slowly along with their stubby little legs. Butterflies have beautiful wings that they use to soar on air currents, and they travel long distances, in some cases, even thousands of miles. Caterpillars have simple eyes with a single lens, and they can only see the world in black and white. Butterflies have complex eyes with a multitude of lenses, and they see an array of colors. Caterpillars have simple antennae that they use to detect food, but butterflies have highly sensitive antennas that they use to detect the exact position of the sun so that they can navigate by it, thus using it like a sophisticated GPS global positioning system. Now, we describe this change as a metamorphosis. And the metamorphosis of the lowly caterpillar that becomes the beautiful butterfly is akin to the change that happens in a person's life and heart when they give their heart to Jesus. It's like, you're still the same you, but you're different. You're not really you anymore. You're not the same you that you used to be because you're a new creation in Christ. And some of you can say amen to that because you remember what life was like in your BC era. And who you were then and who you are now that you're a follower of Jesus is two completely different people. I was talking to a guy just a few weeks ago, and then he was telling me, man, if you would only seen me like two years ago, my life was in shambles. My, my marriage was on the brink of divorce, and I was addicted to all kinds of substances, and I was a mess. But then Jesus found me, and I surrendered to him, and I'm back at home, and my marriage is thriving, and I'm doing wonderfully. I'm not the same guy. And I was like, that's right. You aren't the same person. And what was true of him and what's true of the guy that we're reading about in our story who's having trouble convincing people that he was the same blind beggar is true of every person in here who is a follower of Jesus. 
So they ask him in verse 10, how did it happen? How did your eyes get opened? And he replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked. I don't know. And here's what I want you to see, is the man is beginning a journey into faith. And his faith is going to grow throughout the course of the day. And here at the beginning stage, as the seed of faith begins to take root in his heart and bud, and we don't yet have the blossom yet, but he calls Jesus the man, the man they call Jesus. And I just want you to take note of that at this point. He doesn't know what happened to him. He just went and he did what Jesus said and he came back and Jesus was gone, but he could see. And so in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Uh-oh. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, and now he's telling the story again. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you had to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, hmm, I think he's a prophet. All right, so they now take the formerly blind man and bring them to this, what appears to be a, an official gathering of the Pharisees who were the elite religious leaders of the day. That, who knows, it could have involved the Sanhedrin. This took place in Jerusalem. And they want to get the take of the religious leaders. Why? Because Israel was a religious society, and so the religious leaders, their word was the, the rule of the day on not just religious affairs, but also on civic affairs. What they said held a lot of weight. And so they bring this guy in because they knew that the religious leaders thought Jesus was demon-possessed, that he was insane, and they declared him not to be from God. And so they hadn't given Jesus their stamp of approval. But an event like this posed a problem for them because it had never been heard of in the history of the nation of Israel with all of the miracles and all of the signs and wonders that they had experienced. No one in the history of the nation of Israel had ever been born blind and then been healed. And yet there were all these prophecies that spoke about how that would happen. And so the interpretation was when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to open the eyes of someone who was born blind. And that will be a sign to the nation that the Messiah is in our midst. And so here they have this man who was born blind and now he can see. And Jesus is the one who healed him. And they say, what are you going to do with this? Because you keep saying he's wicked, but he keeps opening people's eyes. It was a problem for the religious leaders. They should have been ecstatic, but they weren't. The question is why? Well, the answer comes to us in verse 16. They had a problem with Jesus because he kept healing people on the Sabbath. He wasn't keeping their rules. Now, I want to point out, Jesus never violated God's command to honor the Sabbath. And that's one of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus honored that. What he violated was their silly interpretation of God's command. Because God says, don't work on the Sabbath, just rest. Make it a holy day where you just commune and fellowship with me. It was a beautiful concept. 
But they had taken that and extrapolated out what does it mean to work, and they'd come up with all of these silly rules where it just became utterly ridiculous. And Jesus violated no less than three of their Sabbath rules when he healed this guy. Number one, he violated the injunction against kneading when he made the clay. They said, oh, the rubbing of his hands together with the spit and the dust, that's, that's work. You can't do that. Secondly, when he had the man wash his face, you weren't allowed to carry water. And so he sent the man to violate their Sabbath rules when he washed in the pool of Siloam. And then how ridiculous is this? They even had a rule against using your saliva to wipe something clean off of somebody's face. So when Jesus used his spit, he was violating another one of their rules, which, of course, he knew full well. He just didn't care. He didn't care. And I'll tell you why. Because he wanted to show the religious leaders how blinded they had become. They were blinded by their own hatred, which made them blind to the miraculous signs and wonders that were happening all around them. And they purposely chose to close their eyes to the mountain of evidence that was supportive of Jesus' claims to be divine. They closed their eyes to the possibility of him even being the Messiah. Why? Because he didn't fit their mold. And so in frustration, they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. And they look at the guy. They're like, what do you think about him? He's like, hmm, I think he's a prophet. <laughs> Which again, notice the progression of his faith. He earlier said, this man they call Jesus. Now he's already developed his faith. And he's like, no, I think he's a prophet. But even as his faith is growing, their hearts are slipping into this hardened state and they're festering in their own unbelief. So they don't want to believe him. So next, what do they do? Verse 18. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. <laughs> okay. Verse 19. They say, is this your son? Is this the one that you say was born blind? Do you hear the insinuation? Like, maybe you guys have been faking this for his whole life. How is it that he can now see? We know it's our son, they responded. And we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now listen, John adds this commentary in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be cast out of the synagogue, which is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. All right, let's think about this. The religious leaders have the testimony of his friends and his neighbors, and they have the testimony of the formerly blind man himself, but they still refuse to believe. Maybe you know someone like that. There are some people who just refuse to believe in Jesus, no matter how much evidence you present them with. And let me just suggest to you that there is a lot of evidence, not just biblical, but extra biblical outside the source of the Bible that supports the fact that 2000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus who went around doing good and he did miracles that were unexplainable. And then he was put on a cross. And then three days later, he was buried in a tomb and he rose from the dead and the tomb was empty. All of that stuff is verifiable facts. And yet people refuse to believe. Why? Well, as the old saying goes, there are none so blind as those who choose not to see. It has nothing to do with evidence and everything to do with a hardness of heart and a refusal to bend the knee. 
And so they call in the parents, and nobody knew better than them what had happened. And surely after he was healed, you can imagine the first people he'd want to see would be mom and dad. And they're, they're thinking back to these memories of bringing their son home from the hospital as a newborn baby. And they, earn, they learn early in those first few hours, or perhaps the first couple of days, that something's off and something's not right. And oh no, the, their worst fears are confirmed. He was born blind and they know what this means for him and how much heartache and hardship it's going to produce throughout the course of his life. But now his son, their son is standing before them and his eyes are open and he's talking about this man named Jesus. But when they get dragged before the religious council, they don't want to corroborate his story. They don't want to cast their lot with Jesus. Why? Because the religious leaders had already made it clear Hey, if you align yourself with Jesus, then you're getting cast out. You're getting excommunicated from the synagogue and by extension, the temple. Man, you couldn't worship there. You couldn't participate in any of the religious ceremonies and services and high holy days and bat mitzvahs and baptisms and, and, and celebrations and weddings and all the rest. But beyond that, it wasn't just the hub of religious activity. It was also the heart and soul of the social life of the community. And so when you were excommunicated, it meant that you were shunned by the very people that you had grown up with and loved. And when they saw you walking down the streets, they would avert their gaze and they would treat you as though you didn't even exist. It was akin to death. And so for the parents, they considered and weighed this and thought, I'm not willing to pay that price. And by the way, there is always a price to be paid. There is a, a cost that must be counted when you decide to follow Jesus. One day, Jesus spoke to a, a gathering, a crowd of would-be followers, and he said this. This is Luke 14, 28 through 30. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Count the cost. There is a cost, and the cost is growing, the cost of following Jesus. It may cost you some friendships, those friends that you used to hang out with. Once they find out you're a Christian, and you're not going to participate in the same activities or go to the same clubs and stuff, they might not want to hang out with you anymore. It might cost you a promotion at work because you're not willing to fudge the numbers or cut corners or do something that's unscrupulous. And in some parts of the world, it could even cost you your life to follow Jesus. But whatever you give up, whatever you pay, whatever it costs, pales in comparison to what you gain. Amen? You'll gain the hope of eternal life, the peace of knowing you're right with God, and you'll have the joy of knowing that you and God are in a right standing. I love the way the, the missionary Jim Elliott put it in his writings. He was a missionary from a generation ago, and he said it like this. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so even if it costs me everything, he would say, I'm going to follow Jesus because he's worth trusting. Now. They call the man back in. They've heard from the parents. They've heard from the friends. They've heard from everybody. And the second time, verse 24, they summon the man who had been blind. And they say, all right, now, we're going to coach you on this. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And here's his response. 
Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind, but now I can see. And I love this. He has such a powerful testimony. And notice how they're trying to drag him into this theological debate about Jesus and his personhood and his divinity and all that. And the guy says, look, I'm not even going to take the bait. I'm not getting involved in that with you. This is the only thing I know. And he falls back on the one thing he knows, and he summarizes his whole experience with Jesus in seven simple, brief, yet powerful words when he says, I was blind, but now I see. And this is, this is the testimony of a changed life. And it was irrefutable evidence. They couldn't argue with him. You can argue theology. You can argue philosophy. You can argue, argue interpretations of scripture. But one thing you can't argue with is the power of a changed life. That's what makes your testimony so powerful. Because if you're a believer, you, like the man in our story, have a testimony. Some of our stories are dramatic and weighty. We make a great movie. Others are simple and clear. But a testimony doesn't have to be, have you know, this flair for the dramatic. It doesn't have to be long or exotic in order to be effective. It just needs to be true and authentic. Because at the end of the day, all of our stories, they're basically the same. We were lost, but we've been found. Like the man in the story, we were blind, but he opened our eyes. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but we put our faith in God, and he caused our hearts to beat again with new life, and he saved us. Amen. And so your testimony really is one of the most effective tools in your toolbox for effectively sharing the gospel, right? And, and the reason for that is it's your story. You may not be a biblical scholar, a theologian, or an apologist, someone who defends the faith. But guess what? There's one topic that you happen to be the world's leading expert on. You. Nobody knows you and your experiences better than you. And there are so many people who they'll never come to church with you, and they're not going to read the books you give them, and they're not going to listen to the sermons you send them. But one thing they probably would be willing to do is sit down with you and hear you tell the story of your life. And if you'll do that, it will open doors for you, I promise. Now, for those of you who've never shared your testimony before, I want to give you a few helpful hints. And, and I think we find an effective strategy or, if you will, outline for how to share our testimony as we consider the way this guy did it. And it consists of three parts. The first part is talk about who you were before you met Christ. The way he does it is he says, I was blind. <laughs> really simple, right? And then he goes, I had this encounter with Jesus. So that's the second part of your story. Talk about how you encountered the Lord and how you met the Lord. And then finish by talking about the difference that he's made in your life. The way this guy did it is he said, now I can see. And you can talk about the way that Jesus has changed you from the inside out. A couple of more helpful tips for those of you working on sharing your story. Number one, try not to exaggerate or glorify your past. Some people, they get into it, and it's like, oh my gosh, did you really live that life? And you were wanted in 27 states, and it's like, they're almost glorifying the past. And it's like, oh, you should have known me then. It's almost like, do you wish you could go back to that life? Number two, don't brag about what you gave up for Christ. 
but about what he gave up for you. Some people, you know, it's like, I had it all. I had the cars, I had the money, I had the women, but I gave it all up for the old rugged cross. (laughs) No, it's not about what you gave up for him. He gave up heaven. And he came to this earth and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And then he climbed up on the cross and he bore your guilt and your shame. So if you'll put your faith in him, he became as you are so you could become as he is. Amen. And finally, always remember to make Jesus the hero of your story. If if you end your story and people are like, wow, you're awesome. (laughs) You've done it wrong. Your story is just a bridge to help get people to Jesus, and he's the real hero of the story. I don't know how many of you have seen the the series, the show The Chosen, uh, but I'm a huge fan of it. If you haven't seen it, check it out. There's The Chosen app, and you can watch it, and it tells the story of Jesus and his disciples. But in that show, one of the characters uh, who plays Mary, she shares her testimony this way, and it just captured my heart the way she told it so simply and beautiful. She said, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. And I love that. He changed it. He changed my life. I grew up in this church. My dad was the founding pastor of Maranatha Chapel. And at five years old, I went to a vacation Bible school. And then we didn't have fancy stuff back then. And so the teacher was telling the story of the gospel on a flannel graph, <laughs> if you remember those. And she took these little felt characters and painted a picture of heaven with fluffy clouds and chubby babies and harps and the sky. And then on the bottom half of the flannel graph, there were flames. And, and it was just like torment. And it was hell. And she said, how many of you want to go to the place on top? And we all raised our hands. And I said a prayer right then. Like I was convinced. But then you you start to get a little older. And and, uh, I decided, you know, I never stopped believing in God. I never stopped believing in Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he was the savior of the world. But, But I wanted to do things my way. I wanted my own way. And so I kind of detoured off the path for a while. And, um, you know, just started trying to make myself happy in the things of this world, as so many do. And, and after a while, I was left with a, just an overwhelming, I was plagued by guilt and shame. I felt dirty, like on the inside. And I was lonely. And I was scared. And I just I hated who I'd become and the things I was doing. And as, as an 18-year-old, I was invited to a church service in Claremont, and I went with this friend of mine, and, and we walked in the, the side entrance. I'll never forget this scene. It was, it was dark out, and we walked in, and there was, it was lit, and, and there was people worshiping everywhere. And in that moment, I was consumed with a holy jealousy because I could instantly tell that there was an invisible connection that was happening in the lives of these people who were worshiping with the God in heaven. And my heart was pierced, and I I knew this is what I wanted because before I had a form of religion, but now I want the real thing. And and before the preacher even got up and shared the gospel, I had already given my life to the Lord. And that night put me on a new path. And and my journey wasn't just like this black and white tale, but often it was two steps forward and one step back. But for 25 years, I've been faithfully pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I might not be who I want to be yet, but I can tell you today, I'm not who I was either. God has changed my life. That's my story. But you have a story too, just like the man in our text. 
And he shared it over and over and over again. If you look at John chapter 9, he tells this story probably five or six different times. I was blind, now I can see. I was blind, now I can see. And so the religious leaders, having questioned him once again, say in verse 26, okay, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Okay, we're going to go through this again. Verse 27, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Ooh, I like this guy. He's a smart aleck. He goes, why do you want to hear it again? Are you going to become one of his disciples too? Oh, this is getting good. And notice, too, the progression of faith from the man they call Jesus to he's a prophet. And now he's identifying himself as a disciple. He's crossed the threshold and crossed the line of being an admirer of Jesus to becoming a full-fledged disciple of Jesus. Now, in verse 28, when they heard him identify himself as a disciple, they were furious and they start hurling insults at him. And they said, you're this fellow's disciple. We're the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is a remarkable thing that you don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does as well. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So they cast him out of the synagogue. And the worst fears of his parents have been realized now in this man's life. And let's just think about what he's going through as he's now been expelled from the, the religious hub and the, the central hub for all social activity in his world and everything that he's gone through in his day. And he started the day out as a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. But then this man named Jesus walks up and he starts talking about light and how he's been sent from heaven. And then he spits and makes mud and wipes it on his eyes and tells him to go and wash. And so he does that and he blinks away the water and his eyes are open. Next thing he knows, he's getting drugged before this, this council of religious men, and he's just sharing his story, and for his faith, they cast him out, and he's reeling, and he's just going, what is happening? And as he's wrestling with all of these, this flood of thoughts and emotions in verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and he went and found him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I can believe in him. And listen to this. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And he looked him in the eyes. Remember, the guy hadn't seen Jesus yet. His last encounter with Jesus was the mud being applied to his eyes, but he knew the sound of his voice. But now he was seeing him for the first time face to face. And Jesus says, I'm the one that you're to believe in. Do you believe in me? In verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And he calls him Lord. And we find the culmination of this journey, this journey full of twists and turns that arrives at the place where he now recognizes Jesus as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Not just a man, not just a prophet, I'm not just a follower, not just an adherent, but you're the Lord of my life. And belief is the central theme of this exchange, this brief exchange between the man and Jesus. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Who am I to believe in? I'm the one. Yes, Lord, I believe in you. 
And to believe is more than mere men- mental assent. It is, is putting the full weight of your life and your future and your hopes and your dreams into the capable hands of Jesus. And then, then he worships. And it's beautiful that our story ends in worship. The word translated worship there is the Greek word proskuneo. And it literally means to prostrate oneself at someone's feet in reverence and awe. He is now worshiping Jesus as God. Now, this is the only time in John's gospel where we find someone worshiping Jesus in this way. The same word is used a couple of times in John chapter 4, but there it is used in reference of worship of God the Father. Here we see a man worshiping Jesus. Earlier, he acknowledged that Jesus had come from God, but now he recognizes, no, Jesus didn't just come from God. Jesus, you are God, and he falls at his feet, and he begins to worship him. And it's the appropriate response. For any and all who have had the eyes of their heart opened, if God has opened your eyes, if he has opened your heart, if he has revealed himself to you, if he's found you just like he found this man, then the only appropriate response is full-fledged, unabandoned, passionate worship, because he's worthy of it. Now, the ironic thing in this whole scene is that the guy had just been kicked out of the house of worship. (laughs) He'd been kicked out of the synagogue. He'd been barred from worshiping in the temple, which was the house of God. It was the place where God's manifest glory was supposed to, to reside and dwell. But let's remember, the religious leaders had already expelled Jesus long before. So the houses of worship that they were protecting were empty shells. And while this guy might not have been able to go to the temple of the Lord, it was quite all right because the Lord of the temple went and found him. And the manifest glory of the Lord shined in the person of Jesus, and he revealed himself to this man. And his eyes were opened, but his eyes were opened. And we close in verses 39 through 41. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now, there were some Pharisees who were standing there, and they heard him say this, and they asked, hey, are you calling us blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And so I was curious how our story ends. And and throughout the chapter, there are these these contrasts, these these two pictures that are juxtaposed side by side. And and it's a a series of contrasts. It begins with a blind man who gains his sight, but it ends with a group of religious men who become spiritually blind. In this chapter, we see one man step into the light, even as others descend into darkness. One man's heart is opened, and he receives Jesus as his Lord. The others harden their hearts, and they reject the light and the love of their Savior and their Messiah. I'm reminded of that old saying, the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. And so today, friends, if you hear the voice of Jesus, today, if you hear his voice, today, 
if your heart is still soft. Today, if you feel the pang of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, mind you, not condemnation. Condemnation makes you want to run from God. Condemnation is a tool and tactic of the devil that makes you feel like you're unworthy of God's love and it makes you want to run away. Conviction is a tool of the Holy Spirit where he says, you've been doing things that run against or are contrary to my will, but if you'll come to me, I'll cleanse you and I'll wash you and I'll renew you. So today, if you feel that in your heart, let me encourage you to respond in faith. Don't harden your heart because the the great tragedy in life is that we can reach a point where we've rejected Jesus, we've stiff-armed him so many times that our hearts become calcified and hard and calloused so that we're no longer able to hear his voice or feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the perfect life that we could never live. And we thank you that he's not done. Jesus is still moving, still healing, still saving, still transforming, still taking lowly caterpillars and turning them into beautiful butterflies. Still opening up blind eyes. Lord, would you open the blind eyes in this room today? I believe that some of you have faith to be saved, faith to be healed today on the inside and experience the greatest miracle this world has ever seen, wherein Jesus comes in and removes your heart of stone and he replaces it with a soft heart upon which he can inscribe his very will for your life. He wants to lead you and guide you. He wants to take away your loneliness. He wants to wash you from the inside out. He wants to take away your shame that has been plaguing you, that you've been carrying around with you, and you can cast that down at the foot of the cross today, and you can be renewed in newness of life and have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that when you pass from this life, you will enter his presence and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's been prepared for you by my Father and the angels in heaven. If that's the desire of your heart, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want new hope and new life, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can just say this prayer out loud with me right now and mean it from the bottom of your heart. And by faith, you will receive the grace that comes from heaven. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me, taking my place, bearing my sin on the cross. I receive the gift of salvation. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lead me on the path that leads to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.